Yeah, it is good to be here. It's good to share. Um, yeah, especially on a long weekend, you know. You never know who's going to turn up. But, uh, you know, Matthew 5, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's these things called the Beatitudes, so the blessed are, or the blessed be statements. And I think he misses one vital blessed be statement out. And that is, blessed are those who come to church on a long weekend, for they shall inherit more of the morning tea. <laughs> Um, we'll get right into it real shortly. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 2, and we're going to read it through it shortly. Um, and just bearing in mind, context is key here. So what I'm going to do is read around it, and then we can read it together. Um, and I want to zero in on the Gospel of John for a couple of reasons. Um, but firstly, it's very interesting to note um, that it differs quite a lot from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and both it's 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 purpose, but also its form. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. They're a historical overview, but the gospel of John does something slightly different. It does tell the story of Jesus' life, but it's focused more on spiritual significance. And I'll show you. John's straight into a section of text that allows us to understand where he's going with things. So we'll get to John chapter 2 very shortly, but let's read, I'll read, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, and then 9 to 13. So this is the beginning of the gospel. Bearing in mind, Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin with either a genealogy or what was happening at the time in the areas that Jesus was about to be born into. John, however, starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, And without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the light, sorry, and the life of light was men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then to verse 9 to 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Interesting. Interesting. I could keep reading, but I hope you get the idea that John is presupposing something before he gets into the nitty-gritty of what actually happened with Jesus' life. He wants us to understand that there's a symbolic reference there. He's talking about who Jesus is before Jesus even arrives, and that's interesting to note. John is interested in the spiritual significance of Jesus' life. Yes, he's interested in dates and times and places and things that happened, but he also wants you to understand who he thinks Jesus is before you even get there, which is really, really interesting. He draws some conclusions about Jesus that precede the actual events of his life. John is prefacing the book with who Jesus is in relation to God, and John continues in chapter 1, essentially saying that he thinks Jesus has come as a son of man, that we may become sons of God. And that's very, very interesting. And I hope that it illuminates the rest of the text. So let's get into John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and we can read it. It should be on the screen. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, 
each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. He then told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Interesting, eh? Very, very interesting. Do you ever read something and you're just like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, what, what is going on? Like, what is that dialogue? Like, how, how do you go from John chapter 1, which is like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, to, oh, Jesus was at his wedding and he turned water into wine. Like, it's a bit of a stark contrast, and it's very, very interesting. Like, why was there a wedding? Why was the wine such a big deal? Like, why was Jesus and his mother and his disciples there? You know, who, who, whose wedding was it? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions there. Um, and it's very easy to read nothing into that and just go, ah, oh, it's just like an anecdotal miracle in the life cycle of Jesus, or to read a lot more into it. And it's interesting because irrelevance is the side that a lot of people go on. They go, oh, yeah, water into wine. It doesn't appear in the other Gospels, so it's really not that important. But it's interesting. Why has John the Apostle included this as the first sign of Jesus' public ministry? And you may think from a glance that it's anecdotal or it's a little blip or it's just, a, just another story that kind of happened. But I really want to suggest something else. See, John records Jesus later on in chapter 5, verse 19 of his gospel. And Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So if Jesus only does what he sees the Father is doing, what is God the Father doing at a wedding in Cana in Galilee? At what seems in the whole grand scheme of things like an insignificant wedding with an impending disaster about wine. I really believe here in in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, through this water into wine miracle, Jesus is establishing a trajectory of victory that encompasses his earthly ministry in accordance with what he sees his father doing. Jesus is not just saving a wedding from disaster, but he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth and foreshadowing the way in which he does so. And I'm going to point out two major things from the text that really suggest this and gets us thinking about the spiritual significance of what's actually happening here. So John starts off chapter 2, this is verses 1 to 5, I'll just quickly read them again. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So this is a typical Jewish wedding. Uh, They usually run over a few days. They're long events. Uh, Guests would have stayed on site. Wine would have been basically the main course, um, which is interesting. Um, and that's the way they celebrated them. They were long events. I mean, I got married at Levita, so I guess our wedding invite would have been like, bring your sleeping bags or something like that. Um, it would have been an interesting sleepover, I'll tell you that. Verse 3 to 5 tells us the wine is running out, and that's actually a big deal. It's a very, very big cultural uh, deal. So in those days, as the wine would have been sort of the main course, the thing that binds the wedding together and they celebrate over it, it would have been very, very embarrassing. 
So Mary, the mother of Jesus, alerts Jesus to the impending embarrassment and basically implicitly urges them to do something about it. Now this is where it gets really, really interesting. And not because he calls his mother woman, <laughs> which is actually not as pointed as it comes through in the English. Um, a lot of footnotes say it's, it's just an endearing term, and it is, because we know this, because later on, John chapter 4, verse 21, and John chapter 19, verse 27, has instances of Jesus using the same word, but to refer to woman nicely. Um, whereas this seems like, woman, why do you involve me? It's not like that. Um, but this is why it gets interesting. It gets interesting because Jesus says, my hour has not yet come which on the surface might seem like Jesus is saying, my ministry hasn't started. Like, why are you involving me in this? I haven't started my ministry. I don't want to. Why would you tell me to, to, to sort this wedding out? But actually, Jesus is referring to the fact that the hour for him to be fully glorified as the Son of Man has not yet come. In other words, it's not Jesus' time to reveal his full messianic self to the world through his crucifixion and resurrection and in turn glorify the Father. But how do we know this? How do we know this? We know this because Jesus references the same hour or time later on in chapters 7 verses 30 when his ministry has well and truly started after performing miracles, after gathering all his disciples, after his teachings. And John narrates the attempted arrest for Jesus for proclaiming as he did in the temple that I have authority on high and, it's, and it reads this, this is chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Interesting. And once more, a little bit later on, chapter 12, verse 23 to 28, Jesus references his hour as the hour he is to be glorified. And he asks his disciples, should I pray to God to rescue me from the hour and purpose for which I was placed on earth? to ultimately glorify my Father's name. And God actually answers this. In a voice from heaven, God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Interesting. So this solidifies us in this text that the hour that Jesus is talking about is the time for full glorification, and it's not yet come. Remembering again that these instances are midway through his ministry. So that's the first sign of the text pointing towards something greater going on. Jesus is anticipating the time in which he will go to the cross and ultimately fulfill his earthly ministry. He's got a perspective beyond his current circumstances. Sign number two. This is reading from verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. He then called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee is the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus is sort of swayed here, his mother's asking him to do something, and he says, no, my hour has not yet come. But something happens there, and he realizes that he can actually do something about it without revealing his full messianic self. So he tells the servants to go and fill the washing jars. Now, these are large jars, by the way. These have probably hold more than 100 liters. Like They're huge things. Um, and these jars would have never been used for serving or drinking from before, which is interesting. 
they were actually used for ritual cleansing or ceremonial washing, which as we know in the times was a very, very cultural thing. Jews would have had to have proved their cleanliness to the high priests before even entering the temple of worship. And that's a very, very interesting point. It was a prerequisite for them entering the place of worship. And what does Jesus do? He performs a sign of his divinity by using the vessel and the contents that would legally and religiously clean them in their day and age to basically provide wine at a wedding. Interesting. By doing this, Jesus would have actually defiled the jars so they wouldn't have been able to be used for ceremonial washing again because they'd been used for serving wine. That's interesting because Jesus knew this. He didn't just make a mistake. He is specifically using these jars, specifically. They're rendered unclean and they're useless in their usual use. So Jesus takes all of that religiousness, he takes the ritual, he takes the habitual practice that had for so long defined who was in and who was out of their culture, who was in and who was out with God, and he uses it to provide wine at a wedding. He uses it and transforms it into a vessel for the serving of wine. This is a sign that Jesus is ushering in a new way, a new covenant with mankind, doing away with the religiousness of the time. It is now about the wine that is poured out partaken. Jesus redefines both the jar's purpose and the contents of the jar. Ultimately, Jesus at this wedding is looking ahead to his hour where he will glorify the Father fully through his crucifixion and resurrection, cleansing once and for all the sins of the world. And something that I really can only touch on because I don't have time. When we fast forward through the narrative of Jesus, Jesus uses wine at the Last Supper to signify his blood. He says this, this is my blood of the new covenant. Friends, a new age has been ushered in by Jesus, where it's no longer the works of your hands that get you even close to heaven, but it's by the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. That is powerful. That is awesome. And so what Jesus is doing at this wedding in Cana is establishing the victory of the kingdom of God. That tra- the trajectory and the game plan has been established well ahead of time, well ahead of your life, well ahead of the lives of these people that we read about in the Bible. Jesus knew his purpose, that his hour, his true time would come, that he would fully redefine the path to God and that it would be by justification, by faith alone. John the Apostle has written these things down to allow it to speak to us because it's important in the life and the ministry of Jesus and that it glorifies our Heavenly Father and it sets the tone for the business that God is doing here on earth. John five twenty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For wherever the Father does, the Son does likewise. I'm telling you, the Father is so into the business of redeeming and reconciling his creation that not even Jesus can do a small miracle at a wedding in Cana without having the hallmarks of the redeeming and the reconciling God and his redemptive plan. We're living in a great age where access to Jesus has been achieved. Access has been achieved. Access to God is easy. It just takes faith. See, the sacrifice of Jesus has eclipsed everything that came before it. He did away with everything that came before it. And he said, I am the consummation of everything. I am the consummation of the law. Follow me and do as I do. His resurrection has ushered in a new age by which the church can celebrate. And his blood is sufficient for everybody on this planet. It is that powerful.
and we're part of this beautiful unfolding story. We get to join in and Jesus invites everybody to be a part of it. He says, come, come to me. You see, Jesus has established the trajectory, the victory, and the final play, if you will. And this invitation is sure and solid. This releases us as his people, as his church, to be able to stand up in that victory, to be able to stand up for his kingdom, knowing that the war has been won, knowing that the victory has been established through Jesus Christ. That is exciting. And our response by no means is passive, but it needs to be wholehearted and committed. It needs to be something that we actually decide to do. You see, God is looking for those who are willing to stand up and be counted for him. It's an, is it an easy decision? Not at all. But the victory is assured through Christ. Does it mean an easy life? No, probably the, the complete opposite. But the victory is assured through Christ. And maybe what this looks like in your life, being able to stand up as a decision of full devotion to God. Maybe it's reconciling with a workmate or a family member. Maybe it's taking a step of faith in the direction that God is leading you. Maybe you need to go back and understand what it is to have victory through Jesus Christ. Ask God for a revelation of his love. Ask God for a revelation of his mercy in your life, his power. You see, you can start looking for his divine power in your everyday life when you ask for it. Sometimes we don't see it at first, but I encourage you, have a look. There are small moments of peace, of joy, of hope, of closeness or proximity to God. And whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, that's when God urges you to look ahead to the grand plan. Look ahead to the bigger story and his promises for the restoration of all things. Those times are a taste of the fullness of the kingdom of God and all that it brings. Those moments are like the signs that Jesus showed his disciples, that they may believe in him and have faith, and that glorifies God. Even though it's a hard slog, there's hope. Even though it can be a hard slog, there is hope. Jesus, more so than us, understands that there's a journey to be had. There is a journey to get somewhere. But Jesus also asks us to look ahead to the promised future. What is in store in the future? It's our anchor of hope. The future is our anchor of hope. That we're able to stand under the same victory that Jesus secured. That we're able to live under that victory and that freedom that Jesus brings us. You see, Jesus knew his purpose here on earth. Do you know your purpose in God? Jesus understood his journey in God's grand plan. Are you partnering with God in his unfolding story? Jesus turning water into wine, wine, a seemingly anecdotal act in the life of Jesus, displays the hallmarks of the kingdom of God and, and God's redemptive plan for the world. Do you have the hallmarks of the kingdom of God on your life? A really, really, really vital place to start in understanding these for yourself is knowing the victory we have in Jesus Christ. I'll just ask the team to come back and I'll just pray just to close. Father in heaven, glory be to your name. As you establish your kingdom here on earth, reveal to us the power of your victory that we may, able, we may able to be standing up with you and partnering with you in what you're doing here on earth.
Lord, give us eyes to see you moving as your story and plan unfolds and give us a greater sense of your Holy Spirit in our daily lives. Give us the courage through a revelation of your victory to be able to stand up for your word, for your name and for your church. Lord, give us courage, give us strength and Lord, reveal your hope to us. In Jesus' name, amen.